Welcome back, everyone, to SEL Convergence. We're back again, and today we are joined by another guest to bring a unique perspective to the work that we're all doing in education. We're going to be speaking with someone today about some services that aren't always considered as primary, but are essential to the work that we do with children. Tom, who do we have with us today? Mike and all of our listening friends, we have this wonderful lady who I've had the interaction with the past couple of weeks, Pam Hackett, who is one of the co-founders of Pediatric Therapeutic Services. Pam, welcome. So happy to have you join us. Thank you. Really glad to be here. So Pam, could you begin by sharing with our audience a little bit about your background and then how you came to co-found Pediatric Therapeutic Services and a little bit about uh, PTS. Absolutely. So I went to graduate school a little bit later after college. I'd spent a little bit of time in the business world. And when I finished school, I was at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for a long time. And I credit my, my years that I spent there with my kind of multidisciplinary approach to therapy because I learned so much from other disciplines. And I've really tried to incorporate that into the company. And I met my current business partner, Diana Fongheiser, after that time. And we have kind of a unique perspective in founding the company. So I had a cleft lip and palate when I was a child. So I received speech services. I had a disability. Um, Diana is the mother of a grown son with special needs, pretty global needs. So she really brings that parental perspective. Mm -hmm. And my own son also got speech therapy and had a pretty significant language delay. So we bring, um, not, it's not just a business perspective or a clinical perspective. We kind of lived this from a lot of different sides and have tried to incorporate those perspectives in everything that we do. So this, for both you and Diana, this is very personal. Very personal. And we're vast, well, probably why we're so relational um, with a company, with our clients, and have a real passion for making a difference and bringing some creative and innovative approaches to how services are delivered. I'm glad we mentioned that it's personal because one of the things that, that I think social emotional learning is all about, and I also believe all of your services are all about, all of us, including our listeners, need to remember that everything is personal to everyone. And certainly if you have a child that has specific needs beyond that little tiny norm group, uh, I happen to believe we all have special needs on any given day. And so uh, it's important to remember, this is very, very personal. And a lot of emotion goes along uh, with our children's needs. Absolutely. It's been, it's been such a joy and so fulfilling. I, I feel very blessed to be able to do the work that we do. So talk to us a little bit about all the services that you offer a school and how would a school... Um, begin to, to work with you or come in contact with you? Well, years ago, we started the company in 1998. We really did OT, PT, and speech, very basic related services. And since then, we've expanded into nursing, psychology, behavioral health, which has been such an eye-opener for me. I've, I've learned a lot. And we are now doing mental health services as well. Mm -hmm. So we really have found that the more people that we have on our team, the more diverse the perspective is and the more we can work to make the services that we deliver inclusive. 
Pam, you mentioned mental health services and coming out of a year and a half pandemic, excuse me, and, and knowing that uh, our staff, all the adults and our children and the parents that send them are coming out of a physical pandemic. There are certainly social emotional concerns. There are trauma informed care needs in our school. There are significant mental health needs. And, and for all of us, there are social justice and or social injustice concerns. So purely from a mental health perspective, what are some of the things that you'd like to see schools doing as this new school year opens up? And what are some of the things you're ready to help with? Well, we definitely want to front load a lot of the social emotional learning strategies in the classroom and also to educate our our therapists on how to implement them within the context of a therapy session. For example, if you're doing a social emotional group for children who have social needs, what we should be incorporating language around how to express your emotions, um, doing some role playing and how to respond if somebody's teasing you, um, how to ask for help if you need it. And it doesn't just have to be speech. As a physical therapist, I can integrate those concepts into work on helping a child get up and down the stairs. So I'm building trust and I'm teaching them how to self-advocate. And so I really think it's almost time, we've been doing multi-tiered systems of support for a long time where mm -hmm. we provide a lot of global strategies for everyone, all kids. And then we do some really targeted therapist developed tier two. And of course we, we treat our tier three students. But I think it's time now that there's this new layer of mental health and behavior concerns resulting from the pandemic. I think that's really exacerbated that. And if we can start to move towards an integrated systems of support, where if you're having a, a social skills group or a mental health counseling group, and there are children who can't self-regulate, can't sit, an OT could be consulting in there. Or a speech language pathologist could be bringing some tools to help kids get their arms around the language of emotion and how to self-express instead of everything happening in isolation. And we love to talk about multidisciplinary and special ed, but I really think this time for a more collaborative um, whole child model is here. So are you seeing that, you mentioned groups, are you seeing that also possibly in classrooms? Absolutely, absolutely. Can you talk more about that? Cause that's exciting for me. So we've always had a, as a model that emphasizes integration into the classrooms because traditional related services is a therapist knocks on the door, grabs Johnny, takes him to a closet, does magic, throws, <laughs> throws pixie dust on him and brings him back. And we've found over time that that does not, it doesn't stick for lack of a better word. And also the teachers and paraprofessionals working with the students don't get that therapeutic perspective. And if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'll tell you a really interesting story that illustrates that. Please. I, I was away for summer vacation and there were a whole bunch of probably 14 to 15 year old students in a life skills MDS type of class. And they were going onto a ferry boat across the river in Norfolk, Virginia. And I was there with my daughter and we were about to get on ourselves and this one boy would not get on the boat. So my daughter grabbed me and she said, mom, I know you don't like to butt in, but I think you're having a big problem. <laughs> so I turned around and I saw this teacher pulling on this boy's arm because they're about to miss the ferry and the horn is blowing and he is not moving. 
though. I walked over and looked at him and I noticed that he had um, one eye that was not tracking with the other eye. And I said to the teacher, I said, listen, my name's Pam Hackett. I'm a pediatric therapist. And I think I know what's wrong. Do you, I hate to interfere, but I'm happy to help. And she said, please, I don't know what to do with him. He's just giving me a really hard time. And I said, I think the problem is that he can't see the edge of the dock. So he can't Uh see where the water is because he has double vision because his eyes aren't working together. So I looked at him and I said, how about if I hold you really tight and make sure you don't fall in the water? And he put his arm out. He was nonverbal, but he put his arm out and reached out to me. And I held him like you'd walk with someone who was visually impaired and walked him onto the ferry boat. And when we got on, he was so happy. He was clapping for himself. He was walking back and forth. And his teacher came over to me with tears in her eyes and said, I feel so terrible. I had no idea. I just thought he was having a behavior issue and I was frustrated. And she said, how did you know? I said, I've had years of neurology and I've had lots and lots of training. You need lots and lots of training because then you would have seen that he just had a, he had a problem. He wasn't being a problem child. He was a child with a problem that needed help. And that's what training does. That's why tiered supports where we're educating teachers and teaching them the things that we know so they can get to that level of understanding and compassion. And that really does, that's a game changer. It overrides frustration. It helps them feel more, a teacher feel more empowered and equipped. And that's why PTS is so passionate about sharing knowledge. That's a beautiful story. Thank you so much, Pam. So I want to take you back a little bit. We Historically, schools have been through RTI. They've been through PBIS. Now the, the, you know, the alphabet is MTSS. And, and you mentioned integrated services. And you, you talked about it a little bit. And you talked about tiers of support. Can you share with our listeners uh, more in-depth information on what your integrated model looks like and, and particularly what those tiers look like? Well, first of all, we need to make sure therapists are talking to each other. So we spend a lot of time giving therapists the opportunity to network and connect with one another so they can learn. We absolutely encourage therapists to treat um, when they're especially in groups in a multidisciplinary perspective. And when we're looking at integrated systems of support, I really feel like that's where we're going to need to go to address the complexity that we're seeing in the student population. So For example, social-emotional learning strategies can be incorporated into any related services activity, Mm. whether it's speech, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's small groups. It doesn't have to happen in isolation where the social-emotional learning teacher comes in and does a lesson. Those strategies and tools need to be taught across the entire spectrum. Just like me as a physical therapist, I integrate social... um, sensory processing strategies that occupational therapists use, and I'll integrate the language strategies for giving directions that a speech therapist recommends. So now I'm integrating the supports. I'm not just operating in isolation in my discipline with that kind of tunnel vision that related services providers can have. I'm so grateful 
that you mentioned that social emotional learning should not be isolated. It should not be done by a specialist or a specific classroom. And that's something I'm thrilled to hear. It's always been my belief system. And that really is reinforced, whether you look at the Castle C-A-S-E-L.org, the Castle mm-hmm. uh, uh, Research, whether you look at Aspen Institute, whether you look at Search Institute, we now know, and, and for me, my history goes back to the early 70s, uh, and we didn't integrate very well. It was always a special day, a special event, a special speaker. So now we know the more we can integrate the social emotional with all that we do in schools, from our everyday culture and climate practices to our curricular activities. And of course, with all the services that you offer, the better for our children, the better for our staff. And if anyone needs some social emotional learning skills, it's kids who have disabilities. I mean, they have a lot of challenges, Um, even if they are not, you know, even if it's just a physical issue or a neurological issue, they they need support to be able to be fully participating in the social environment and the academic environment in school. I, I needed that. I mean, I remember what it was like to be teased because I had a, I had a, a lateral lisp. <laughs> I, rem, I remember what that felt like. And I think, gosh, what if I'd been in my speech group and someone had taught me how to better self-advocate, how to handle when someone teases mm. me, how to, how to turn that situation around. And we can, do, we can do a lot better than we're doing for these students. I love hearing that. I also want you to know, and I want our listeners to hear, I had the privilege of having Pam visit my master's degree course in building a classroom community last week. And our students, which are all teachers and counselors and uh, nurses, were thrilled to have you there. They were, they were asking for you. They were talking about you hours after you left. So the idea of integrating your services uh, with the everyday practice of education uh, was, again, reinforced in that class. Thank you so much for visiting, Pam. Oh, I hope you, I would love to come back. So you you let me know when I can and I'll be there. <laughs> well, I, I want to share your expertise with future classes. Thank you so much. Now, in, in after that class, you had a chance to share some of these integration ideas with me in a paper that you had written. And I want, one of the, a couple uh, things really struck me. You mentioned uh, quote, tried and true classroom strategies. For our listeners, again, can you share some of your tried and true strategies? Absolutely. First of all, students need to move. And a lot of the time, um, I mentioned that I do some missions work in developing countries where I go and train teachers where there aren't any therapists. And every time I go out to visit those schools, the number one thing they say is, I need the kids to focus and pay attention more. And so one of the things I always let them know is having students sit in a chair for hours and hours and expecting them to have their eyes on you and be attentive all that time is just not a realistic expectation. And it's really true when you teach teachers, as you know, Tom. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, teachers have as hard of a time paying attention as anyone else. So I teach them to incorporate movement. Um, and also to use some of those instructional strategies that we learn when we're in school, collaborative learning, kinesthetic learning, where we're doing things more experientially, we're creating variety, it's not so didactic and teacher focused. 
So a lot of those tried and true strategies are there. Um, learning, teachers learning how to break down complex tasks so that they're, they're accessible because we can't always fully differentiate the, the curriculum when we're teaching, but we can break down a task into reasonable chunks so that students that need a little more time or a little more focused direction can do that. And certainly behavioral strategies in terms of setting clear expectations, um, minimizing distractions in the classroom, how to handle and reinforce positive learning behaviors, all those things are thing, tools that every teacher should have in their tool bag. And I think when they get in the classroom for a long time, and I can say this as a teacher, it's really easy just to get in your lane and start talking mm -hmm. and forget all those things that we, we learned about how to be a good instructor. Pam, uh, I wanna invite Mike to jump in here a second. Uh, as our listeners know, Mike is a special educator uh, day in and day out in West Hicken School District. Mike, when you hear movement, uh, when you hear chunking, uh, when you hear Pam speaking about some of her tried and true practices, what resonates with you? Uh, all of them. <laughs> um, so it's it's one of those things where when I listen to that, it's a very feel, like familiar conversation for me. Um I typically work with students who provide or they're provided with supplemental academic support. So they spend a large uh, portion of the day with me and outside of their general education classroom. So these are, you know, uh, th these sound like practices that I incorporate uh, daily, but I have seen in recent years a disconnect between other staff in my building because it's something that I take for granted as a normal practice, but other teachers don't have the background and the information education to make those same choices for their students. So when you talk about integration and, um, and, and bringing all these different uh, services together, it, it warms my heart. So I'm like, oh yeah, I know this, I know that. But when it comes down to it, I, th I think a lot of people don't feel that way because they don't have the background that I do. Thank you, Mike. Pam, you want to jump in? Go ahead. Yeah, we just, we need to share what we know. And one of the things I've learned from teaching teachers where there aren't any therapists around is they don't need, they don't need 80% theory and 20% ideas and strategies. They need 80% ideas and strategies and 20% theory, so that they know how to apply it. And so that's definitely something that I think as special educators and related services providers, we need to spend time giving strategies and, and then a little bit more time explaining the why behind them. Because when, when a teacher understands why they're doing something and they get to watch it work in the classroom, the chances of them carrying that through the rest of the week go up exponentially. Wonderful. Pam, in your paper, you also mentioned the idea of functional safety net for students, a functional safety net. So what does that look like? Help our listeners understand the functional safety net. So some examples of that would be, let's say we're talking about handwriting skills, which is even to this day, a reason why kids get sent to occupational therapy is they have terrible handwriting, they don't hold their pencil right. And so we've been trying to avoid that because just because you hold your pencil funny doesn't mean you need occupational therapy, but we still get referrals. So a functional safety net is having an OT go into the kindergarten class at the beginning of the year and just take a look around and provide some basic cues of 
how to hold your pencil, how to, that handwriting is a two-handed operation where you have one hand stabilizing the paper, the other hand writing, some basic cues about positioning at desks and making sure that desks and chairs fit right, and just something that's available to all the learners so that we're not over-identifying or disproportionately identifying certain students who may just need a little bit more time to be exposed to certain skills. So providing practice opportunities, um, we even have fine motor kits that can go in a kindergarten classroom with a whole, I guess it's about a whole month's worth of fine motor activities for students that just need a little bit of hand strengthening because they just haven't had the exposure to doing lots of manipulative play and they need to build those hand muscles up a little bit. So it, it means a functional safety net means you can get help without being identified with a disability and you can get a little boost. And that's really the, the thinking behind MTSS. But when we do it in the classrooms and teachers are watching, they learn too. So then they become equipped and empowered with information that makes them better teachers. So I imagine that now post-pandemic, children are going, children and schools are going to need your services even more because yeah. children have not been in schools. They've not had their hands on manipulatives. They've not been moving. They've been sitting passively. And yeah, it's, it's a it's a huge tidal wave that's coming, especially with kindergartners, because a lot of parents held their kids back from kindergarten last year. So now we're going to have bigger classes with more kids who have not been in school for 18 months to two years, who are going to descend upon poor unsuspecting kindergarten teachers and are going to look like they have a delay. Mm. But it's really, we really have to kind of have a recruitment mindset that just because there's a delay right now doesn't mean there's a disability. So once again, these tier one supports are going to be critical. Tell me more about this recruitment mindset. A recruitment mindset is there maybe just because a skill is lost doesn't mean we can't get it back. And just because there's something is emerging and or emerge more slowly doesn't mean there's necessarily a disability. So we really want to look at this in terms of supplemental instruction so that kids can regain skills that they've lost and can get that extra stimulation they need to catch up. And then the students that need even more We'll, we'll do those tiered supports and give them the appropriate level of intervention. So I'm curious. I, I certainly understand how that works for our children. Does that also work for a 70-year-old man like me? <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. I think it does. I mean, it's interesting how our whole society has been so isolated. And I've been noticing out in public only recently have people started to smile at each other again. Mm. We've all been hiding behind masks for a long time. And I was walking in the park over the weekend and all of a sudden people were greeting each other again yeah. and smiling again. So, I, yeah, I think we have some recruitment to do as well. I'm glad. I love that word. I love it. Now, also in your paper, you mentioned zones of regulation. Now, I know for Mike, I know for our special educators, and maybe for many of our educators, they know, they have a pretty strong sense of what zones of regulation mean. But I'd love it if you could go into some detail for our listeners. Well, the reason I brought that up in terms of this integrated systems of support is if I am a mental health provider and a counselor, and I'm in a room of 
students who are struggling with substances. And I've got five or six students there. That is some language that we could put in place to help students recognize how they're feeling inside. A lot of students, they are, a lot of kids who are struggling with substances in the high schools, their interoceptive abilities, their ability to figure out how they feel, what they're feeling and what that means is challenged. And a lot of them self-medicate because of that. So if we could put some language around that to help them better express where they're feel, what they're feeling right now in words that make sense to them, mm -hmm. I think we would see more benefit. And also then as a leader of a group, I can accommodate for those students. Maybe everybody, maybe somebody needs to be sitting in a beanbag chair because they're feeling super stressed, not sitting in a hard chair mm -hmm. with everybody staring at them. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I I hear you saying children with substance abuse challenges. I would also imagine that would apply to mental health challenges as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. I was just using that as an example of mm -hmm. some of the things that we're starting to see and work on. Excellent. I'm, just, uh, please. I'm excited about that. Good. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to hear it. For, forgive me. I was thinking that your services... Uh, were for special needs populations. I, I I apologize. I wasn't thinking about the children with substance abuse issues or, or mental health issues. It depends on the program and what districts are willing to fund. So we do work with some approved private schools and are going to be doing some work with students who have um, who are going to need that type of specialized care. But I still believe we can bring that into the regular high schools and the regular middle schools for students. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see it. So take us now into your international work. You, you, you mentioned that you're involved uh, in, in some, you, you use the word mission work. Expand on that and expand on the international work you're doing. Well, in 2008, my business partner, Diana, introduced me to a couple that had a school for children with special needs in southern India in a city called Mysore. And we had lunch. He meant the founder mentioned that they had no therapists. They had some very inexperienced teachers who didn't really even have a special ed background and needed help. And I was, he asked if I could come to India. So I, about six months later, packed up my bags by myself, got on a plane, flew halfway around the world to work with people I'd met over lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a, one of the greatest adventures of my life, and it changed me forever. I, I've always loved the work that we do, and I feel like I've tried to bring kind of a global perspective to it. But seeing seeing what you can do with so little resources and still have an impact and change these lives, it changed me because I was only going to be there for two weeks, and I had to get the things that I knew as a PT, as, as a closet OT, and a functional speech therapist <laughs> from all my years, I had to take what was in my brain and put it in the brains of these teachers and hand over to hand teach them how to facilitate walking, um, teach them how to use picture exchange, teach them how to feed a child that was aspirating on food. Mm. And I had to get that knowledge into them. And I really didn't know what was going to happen. So if that was even going to make a difference. But when I came back a year later for another two weeks, the kids had made huge progress. Wow. And I thought, gosh, are we underutilizing teachers? Not that teachers need anything else to do, hmm. but 
that equipping them with the knowledge and some of the insight that we have as therapists so they can apply it in the classroom and carry it through, they did miracles. They did wonders. And it built my um, expectation and understanding of what teachers are capable of and even the paraprofessionals we have in our classrooms. Mm. They're underutilized and under-equipped compared to what the impact that they can have. What other countries have you worked in? I have also worked extensively in Latin America. So I've been to the Dominican Republic and Guatemala. And recently, because of Zoom, I've been doing multinational um, trainings where I'll have Nicaragua, Ecuador, Peru, the Dominican Republic, Guatemala, 400 mm. teachers. And Zoom is actually translating into Spanish now in almost real time. So I've been able to do a lot of training through COVID without even getting on a plane. That's but, fantastic. But I love to go. I'm, I'm at my happiest in the middle of a small school, in the middle of a big slum, in the middle of Latin America. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I found when I was traveling a lot doing, doing some international work is that people are people are people and children are children. And, and although our languages may be different, we are wonderfully similar. Absolutely. It's a big family and your heart grows when you do that work. And it also makes you um, less entitled. Here in America, I think we just expect everything to get fixed for us and unlimited resources. And it's basically showed me the power of pure knowledge. Knowledge mm -hmm. can be shared for free. I mean, we can have really expensive equipment and very expensive curriculum and very expensive programs, but sharing knowledge between person and person is free and we need to do more of it, which is really the philosophy behind this integrated systems of support. We need to teach each other what we know. I love that, Pam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mike, you know, I'm going to have some closing questions for Pam, but before I do, from your perspective, is there anything you'd like to ask Pam? Um, yeah, so I would, I, I'm curious about two things. The, the first being earlier, you had talked about providing um, service providers with an opportunity to collaborate with each other and have a more integrated model. Um, could you just briefly tell me like, what, what does that look like? What does, it, what does that mean that they're able to collaborate and communicate with each other? It takes a lot of different forms, but one of the things that we do, and you'll relate to this, Tom, is we really try and build community because the communication happens when the relationships are established. Mm -hmm. So PTS is very big on team happy hours, social events. If we have a continuing education event, there's a social time where people connect and are talking. And once those relationships are built, then we see emails and phone numbers getting exchanged and the connections happen. So I think during the school day in the school, it's, it's difficult to find time to establish those relationships. So we get our teams together outside of school time on our dime. We buy the appetizers and a few <laughs> drinks and <laughs> let everybody connect as friends. And then these conversations naturally happen. I love it. That's wonderful. It's relationship. Yeah. That, no, I, I can't, I can't agree with you any more than that. <laughs> The, the other question I had is I'm really interested in this functional safety net and kind of the, what I would call like preventative services. 
mm-hmm. where yeah, where you would you would identify something before it becomes a long term long term um, challenge or deficit for a student. Is that is that something that can be applied? like in general across the board or does that lend itself more to specific practices? I know you had mentioned more an occupational therapist as your example, but have you had success in that kind of preventative service in other areas? Absolutely. So we have quite a few tier one programs, everything from sensory pathways that we can put in an elementary school so that lots of kids get to experience what it's like to do calming activities or alerting activities. Um, we have we have tons of free trainings that we give away. We actually built a teacher resource website for free on our mypts.com site. You'll see, are you a teacher or a parent? We have a whole library of resources there that we've created and give away for free. Um, so really tier one and that safety net is based on equipping teachers with basic strategies and understanding of how to facilitate language, how to manage simple behaviors and understand reinforcement, how to look at a child and look at where they are from a sensory processing standpoint, or identify trauma, trauma trauma-informed care. That functional safety net is based on teachers having some fundamental knowledge of across the disciplines so they can be good triagers for kids to get them up that that multi-tiered systems of support as they need to. And also having access to just tip times. Our OTs will just go into a faculty meeting and say, hey, it's the beginning of the school year. If you see this, here's three things you can try. It doesn't have to be an all-day in-service because a lot of the time, half of that goes over our heads anyway. It's too much information at one time. So a little bit of like staff newsletters. We'll have related services newsletters that we'll hand out to teachers so that they can get new ideas of things to try. That creates that functional safety net. I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Pam, so here's my my final question. And I've been asking many of our guests the past couple of weeks uh, for the three of us here today, uh, school for almost everyone in this area of the country opens up in about five or six weeks. What's your strongest recommendation for the first week of school, maybe the first two weeks of school? What's your strongest recommendation to this this group of educators who dearly cares about children and we're all coming out of a challenging time? What would you recommend? I would recommend that we give them time to feel safe in school again and to be able to have time to build those fundamental relationships that make a classroom a good, healthy learning environment. And so that means incorporating some of these fun movement strategies that we have, um, everything from brain breaks or all of that, having kids take time to connect socially and not rush into the curriculum. I think everybody feels a lot of pressure to get kids caught up, but we need some time to assess and we need some time just to let everyone catch their breath again. And so I hope everybody will take their foot off the gas a little bit when we get back to school and model this sort of patient. I wanna get to know you. I want us all to feel safe here. I want to understand what's happening with you and has happened to you because kids are coming back with trauma. They've lost loved ones. They've, the, the domestic abuse situation is off the charts and we need to take time and assess and learn 
from they need to learn from us and we need to learn from them for a little while and not rush to identify kids as having a big problem. I think we need to go slow, do lots of these tier one type strategies, not assume everybody has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, maybe just incorporate some movement strategies in the classroom and do some basic fundamental learning about where these kids are at. Pam, thank you so much for today. So how can our listeners find you? We are Pediatric Therapeutic Services. Our website is mypts.com, so mypts.com. Please feel free to come on and take a look at our teacher website, see what we have available. And if you'd like to talk with us about services, we'd be delighted to work with you. Pam Hackett, thank you so very much. Mike Mandel, thank you again for coordinating and producing. Thank you, listeners. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.